So we used to call ovarian cancer the disease that whispers. Now we say let's break that silence. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today we have two guests, two experts in ovarian cancer, Dave O'Malley and Leah Center. In the first half of our podcast, Dave, the director of the Division of Gynecologic Cancer, will fill us in on some of the advances in the treatment of ovarian cancer. And in the second half, Leah, a genetics counselor, will tell us all about some breakthroughs in the genetic testing of ovarian cancer patients and how this can save lives. There will be about 22,000 new ovarian cancer diagnoses this year, and about 14,000 women will die from this disease. So reducing these numbers is the goal and the, the passion and the work of Dave and Leah and their colleagues here at the James. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Oh, Steve, so so great to be with you today and, and to talk about one of my passions, which is the treatment of ovarian cancer. Great to be here. Great to talk with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And let's start with some basics. T tell us, walk us through a little bit about ovarian cancer, what it is, and perhaps why it's so hard to detect and treat. Well, ovarian cancer is actually a series of three diseases. Ovarian cancer that obviously starts in the ovaries, fallopian tube cancer, and with primary peritoneal cancer. Uh, primary peritoneal cancer is, is cancer that starts outside the ovaries but behaves just like the ovaries and, and usually is probably from when, when we were developed and, and as the ovaries pass through in the development phases. So we refer to all three of those diseases, ovarian cancer. Most recently, uh, we found that many of these may actually be fallopian tube cancers that then go out to the ovarian cancer, uh, to, to the ovary, excuse me. So when we, when we talk about ovarian cancer, we talk about this collection of three diseases, and we really just refer to it as ovarian cancer. The problem is it doesn't give women symptoms right. often until the advanced stages. So as we try to find tests uh, or, or screening uh, opportunities, um, we haven't yet found one that's reliable. So the other issue is getting practitioners, health practitioners and patients to understand their bodies and their symptoms. So we used to call ovarian cancer the disease that whispers. Now we say let's break that silence. And it, it, the most common presenting symptoms for ovarian cancer are often vague abdominal symptoms. So women will present with a change in their bowel or bladder habits, often frequency, needing to go more often, or urgency, uh, getting, uh, needing to go right away, or having some abdominal pressure or bloating. Um, these are all symptoms. If you think about that, all of us, Men and women have those symptoms at times. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this past Fourth of July barbecue, boy, I I had some uh, GI issues. You know, that's a different story, though. So we we you know, how do you separate the those symptoms which are worrisome for people versus those symptoms which which can be tolerated? Right. If you have the, if you have these on a regular basis, you just sort of fluff them off and say, yeah, I've got a little indigestion, no need, it'll pass, and you go on with your life. And that's a great point, Steve. If it passes, it's okay, right? But if you're having it every day, if you're having it more days or not uh, than not, and those symptoms 
are increasing, that's the sign you need to get them checked out. Okay. You have something goes away, do better, or you get, you know, if you say, geez, if I eat late at night, I have some indigestion, I stop eating late at night, the indigestion goes away, that's okay. But if you notice that those symptoms are getting worse over time and persisting more days than not, that's the key. And then what happens when a woman sort of has these symptoms and they're persistent and she goes to a primary care physician is initially, does that doctor not think ovarian cancer? Is that one of the problems? Well, there's so many, uh, d- potential diagnosis on the list called the differential diagnosis. So as we look at the, uh, 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 practitioners, they have so many things they're thinking about. And so it's really important that, uh, they, they have that in their differential, that this could be ovarian cancer or a for- form of ovarian cancer. And many, we've done a great job of educating our OBGYNs over time, but many of these patients start in other specialties, right? Uh, their primary care doctor, internal medicine, family practice, GI, urology at times because of the other symptoms they're having. So it's very important to not only educate patients, but also educate practitioners. This has to be in their differential. Then the question becomes, what do you do about it? You know, we don't want all every patient out there getting the pelvic ultrasound or a CAT scan or both for symptoms. But if a practitioner thinks about that, a thorough physical examination, feeling for any uh, a, uh, a distension, masses, but it's really hard to pick up on examination. So if there was one test that, that we start to think about, it's either a pelvic ultrasound or sometimes a CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis. But I'd really, I, I really like for uh, patients to continue to, uh, ex, uh, to make sure there's not other things going on. There's a lot of uh, diseases uh, that can cause these types of problems. I don't want everybody out there running to get a CAT scan, that's for sure. But important to, for everybody to, to think about and consider. So because of all the things you just said, does that mean that often by the time a woman gets to you that her ovarian cancer is in the later stages and and harder to treat as opposed to certain other cancers like perhaps breast cancer where you get a mammogram every year and you can catch it at the really early stages? Yeah, I think it's probably twofold. One of which is we we used to hope and, and maybe and hypothesize or think that you know, ovarian cancer started stage one, went to stage two, went to stage three, went to stage four. What we're finding out is it, it, uh, the, the, the process uh, it, it may present in the advanced stages, meaning that we don't have a lead up, uh, a, a lead um, diagnosis that could help us. So in breast cancer, you have a mammogram that is, is, uh, can be obtained uh, and then um, see a small lesion. But we, when we look at ultrasound and following people with ultrasound, we pick up so many things which aren't cancer, which can lead to additional surgery, which can lead to other uh, uh, interventions, which can actually put patients more at risk. And then there's also a blood test called a CA125. But the CA125 is not a very good screening test. Once again, it's elevated for a number of reasons uh, to uh, other than ovarian cancer somebody who's on their period, somebody who uh, has fibroids or potentially pregnant, 
all endometriosis, all those things can elevate a CA125. So the problem is we don't have a good screening test. And so the most important thing we can do is identify those patients who are at the highest risk, like those with a genetic predisposition, like BRCA1 or 2 or Lynch syndrome, and intervene earlier to try to prevent ovarian cancer. We have such a long way to go from screening, and it's really hard for me after being in this field for almost 20 years to say we're no closer to a true screening test than we were when I started. We've done so many other great things, but we still don't have a screening test. So that's what a lot of the work that we're doing here at the James, as well as around the country, looking to see if there's a reliable and predictable screening test. I hope one day we'll have a blood test. I hope one day we have uh, uh, some sort of diagnostic test. But unfortunately, Steve, we're not there. So if there is no reliable screening process, how do you actually make the diagnoses? Do you actually have to do a, a scan, see a mass, go in, do a biopsy, and then look at the biopsy? That's actually perfect. Um, you know, I th- you, you got a job, brother. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we, we, it's exactly what we do. Um, we need we need practitioners to think about it, to do the appropriate testing, which is often a CAT scan or an ultrasound. And then once it's identified, uh, be, to be sent to an expert who takes care of ovarian cancer, uh, some uh, called a GYN oncologist, and that's what I do. So all we take care of is female cancers. And obviously at the James, we know that each doctor takes care of just a set of cancers. And for us, it's GYN cancers. And when you look at people who get treated by experts, they do unbelievably better. The number one thing that that a woman with ovarian cancer can do to improve her outcome is to go to a large center that treats a lot of ovarian cancers. But you're right, you need a biopsy, you need surgery to prove your diagnosis, and then from there, intervention. Well, let's talk a little bit about intervention and some of the hopefully great advances in precision cancer medicine and in immunotherapy, chemotherapy. What are sort of the the cutting-edge treatments you and your your team at the the James are doing now for ovarian cancer? Oh, man, Steve, I don't recognize the field that I'm, uh, I'm in for, for a good reason. And what I mean when I say that is it is so rapidly changed in the last five to 10 years. It is completely different than when I started my career 20 years ago. And that's a great thing for our patients. We now are able to treat ovarian cancer to the point where we're not quite there yet, but we really are, are, are getting close to the point where, like hypertension, like diabetes, like high cholesterol, we may not completely get rid of this cancer, but we're going to be able to control it like we can control diabetes, like we can control high blood pressure. You don't, die, you don't cure somebody of their diabetes or hypertension you treat it with medicines and keep it under control. And that's where we're going to in ovarian cancer. I, you know, I've heard that from other doctors with a couple other types of cancer where they, they call it, you turn it into a chronic disease where by treating it, it can, you can just keep it under control for years and years. And that may not even be the thing that, that will ultimately kill you. 
Um, it's it's exactly. I didn't use the word chronic disease, and 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 I, boy, I don't want to compare my high blood pressure and my high cholesterol to, to a woman with ovarian cancer, but I I sure do hope that that one day we we will we'll be able to do that. We'll turn into a chronic disease. None of us are getting out of this world alive, right? Yes. Something's got to get us all. But what we want to do is have the best quality of life for as long as we can while we're here. And and if we can make it so ovarian cancer is not impacting quality of life and not making women live less long, then gosh darn it, we're doing a heck of a good job. So what are some of the the new drugs that have been developed that are enabling you to do this to to keep the a woman's ovarian cancer in check for for years at a time and hopefully decades at a time. Well, the, there's a, a a large class of drugs that uh, are are now used outside of ovarian cancer called PARP inhibitors. PARP inhibitors. There's actually three drugs that are currently approved in ovarian cancer, all of these within the last several years. And those actually work on the mechanism of the uh, cell repair, the DNA repair. And it actually, the, the, the tumor is, uh, has a repair mechanism, which is, is faulty. And so the cells don't die. Um, and, and these class of drugs work on that pathway to cause the cancer cells to die. And those are now indicated in patients who are diagnosed with ovarian cancers, patients who recur, and patients have certain mutations either in their genes or in the tumors called BRCA mutations. And Leah is going to talk all about BRC mutations and how we differentiate genes from tumors. Really looking forward to hearing from her later on. So if I understand you correctly, these PARP inhibitors, what they do, they almost put a kill switch into these cancer cells so that they'll, they'll, the immune system can find them or that they'll kill themselves, but they'll keep growing. So as they grow, they die. So that's why it's sort of you can control it but not eliminate it. Is, is that how it works? It's, you know, it's a very, I like that description, not, not completely exactly how I describe it, but I think what we're doing is we're manipulating the machinery in the cancer cells so it leads to death rather than the cells continuing to grow. Now, would this be an immunotherapy? No, it's not. It's actually just working within the machinery. The immune therapy treatments in ovarian cancer continue to, to, to move in, in development. But un, unfortunately, the impact on immune therapy in ovarian cancer has not been as great as we were hoping. And actually, that's very surprising to us because um, um, immune cancers actually are quite immunogenic, meaning we, we recognize the body recognizes ovarian cancers as something that should get, a, get rid of. Actually, one of the first papers that uh, described immune cells and cancers was in ovarian cancer. And we described these tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. So it's really interesting that even though it should work, it's not working as well as, as we like. Now, what we're doing is we're taking those immune therapies and we're combining them with other therapies like PARP inhibitors, like antivascular therapy, like bevacivimab. 
And we're tr when we combine those, it seems that the cells become more responsive to the immune system. So in our current our current design, all our clinical trials and work are non-immune therapies by themselves, which are which have modest benefit, but they're combining them with other agents, which helps then the body recognize these cells as something they should get rid of. And that's really how immune therapy works. The immune therapy, these drugs that we give, they don't kill the cells directly. They just allow the body to recognize them and get to them and kill them. So I take it here at the James and in your department, you have clinical trials that are, that are pushing that needle forward of combining these PARP inhibitors with immune therapy. Steve, I'm so lucky to work at the James. We are literally one of the top three to five programs in the country for GYN cancer research. And we really think about the opportunities for the patients here in central Ohio, as well as across the Midwest and across the country and across the world. We have patients from all over the world who come to us for clinical trials. We have one of the most robust portfolios. So every patient who walks into our clinic, my goal as the director and as the director of research and the division is that every patient, no matter where they are in their treatment, will have one or two options for clinical trials. The most exciting, the most cutting edge therapies available to our patients, not just one, but hopefully two options. Well, I can hear the passion and the excitement in your voice. So kind of compare where you and, and treatment is now compared to 20 years ago and, and where you think it's going to be in another 10 or 20 years. And I'm assuming that's where the passion in your vo and excitement in your voice comes from. I mean, it really is. I'm, 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 I'm seeing things I've never seen before in my career. I'm seeing people, you know, uh, who, whose disease has been stable for 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 years. And so where were 20 years ago when I started in this field, almost nobody lived more than three to five years who, were di who was diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It was literally 85% of women will die with, within three to five years, less than 20 years ago. Now, most women live beyond, well beyond that. Most women live beyond that. I mean, I don't want to overstate this, Steve. You hear my passion, you hear my excitement. Yeah. I also don't want to overstate, okay? But most women now who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer will be alive more than five years. And many women will be alive more than 10 years. And as I said, my hope is that those women don't die of their ovarian cancer, but die of other natural causes. Wow. Well, well, thanks for filling us in. And in the second half of this podcast, Lee is going to fill us in on sort of the genetic side. And I have a feeling that that combination of the lab work and the clinical trials that you do on your side, and then the screening and the genetic testing and the, and the knowing more about who's going to be more likely is what's also driving this forward. Well, and it's, you know, we talk about that there's no cancers at the same, right? The no, the, all these cancers are different. In ovarian cancer, that is so true. We're identifying mutations, n not just in patients, who, who obviously is so important for their own health and their, and their family's health, because if they have these mutations in, in their genes, and, and Leah will talk about, talk about that, so I don't want to get too much into that, 
you know, we now look at the tumors. And when we look at the tumors, now we can test those tumors. And now we have treatments that are targeted those mutations. And when we target those mutations, we are controlling disease. It, we are really turning it into a chronic disease. And those are those PARP inhibitors. Now you know what we're doing. Now we're testing and looking for certain proteins which are expressed on the cells. So, for example, one of those proteins is called the folate receptor alpha. Name's not important, but it is expressed highly, highly in about half of ovarian cancer. And now we're working and collaborating with uh, companies and, and the NCI across the country. So you have a target. To design. You, yeah, you have a target. We to have a target. To. Yeah. Man, we have a target. And listen to this. The target connects to the cancer cell. And it's called an antibody drug conjugate. And the target connects, the, 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 the therapy connects to the cancer cell and then releases the contents, in this case chemotherapy, directly into the cancer cell. Wow. So it is a smart therapy limiting toxicity, maximizing the amount of drug we can deliver directly to the cancer cells. These antibody drug conjugates, another amazingly exciting opportunity for us to help ovarian cancer patients. My vision in, in, is that when patients come in, we'll test their tumor for all these molecular changes, but in addition, we'll test it looking for proteins which will have agents that we can target specifically to those proteins so that we give them the best drug, the most targeted, with the least amount of toxicity. Okay, I can't wait and to have you back in a, a year or so to, to fill us in on all the great advances in this protein-oriented attack therapy. So Dave, thanks. Thanks for filling us in on ovarian cancer and some of the breakthroughs in treatment. And we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be back with Leah to fill us in on the genetic side of this equation. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Leah Center. Welcome to the podcast, Leah. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So genetic testing has come a long way in the past few years, and one of your specialties within genetic testing is hereditary gynecologic cancers. So I thought it would be helpful if first you could give us a little background on how a woman can inherit a genetic mutation that would increase her risk for this type of cancer and, and sort of what that means. Sure. Um, you know, we always say that most cancers have a genetic component, but it's a certain subset of cancers that are what we call truly hereditary. And what we mean by that is that a person can be born with a mutation, which is kind of like a glitch or typo in a gene that they've inherited from one of their parents. That doesn't mean they're born with cancer or even a guarantee to get cancer, but they are born with a much higher than average chance of getting cancer. 
And there are some ovarian cancers and uterine cancers in particular that can be hereditary. So genetic testing has become really important as in part of the treatment plan and care plan for women with this kind of cancer, partly because it can help with their treatment decisions. Um, but also once we identify a hereditary cancer predisposition, if you will, in a family, we can open up testing options for that woman's family members and then really be able to pinpoint who also has an elevated risk and who has average risk. And then we would tailor their screening accordingly. Because in the first half of the podcast, Dave O'Malley talked a little bit about how ovarian cancer, the symptoms are are not that uh, obvious and that a lot of women miss them. And so therefore they're d- diagnosed in the later stages. But what you're saying is if you know someone has a hereditary genetic predisposition disposition to get this cancer, you start looking early, catch it early. That's the hope. You know, Dr. O'Malley is absolutely right, though, that most ovarian cancers are diagnosed at an advanced stage. And part of the reason why that is, is that we don't really have a good screening tool that's reliable to catch ovarian cancer early. But what genetic testing allows for is if we identify the women at the highest risk levels, we can actually intervene with preventive surgeries, so actually removing the ovary tissue to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer as much as possible. And it's a complicated decision to make, obviously. It's a surgery. We don't take it lightly. Um, But the timing of the surgery matters, you know, when a woman's planning the family and, you know, there are other hormonal factors to be considered. But for those women who have the highest risk attributed to maybe a BRCA mutation where women can have up to a 40% chance of ovarian cancer, that surgery becomes a real um, option to consider. So you mentioned the BRCA hereditary genetic mutation, the breast cancer mutation. And a lot of people, because of the name, think that it only means you have the increased risk for breast cancer, but really it's it leads to several higher risks for several different cancers, including ovarian cancer. So how do you detect this in women and how do you use that information? And how are you literally doing that? What's the program? I know you have a program, but I don't fully understand what it is. Sure. Um, Yeah, the BRCA genes were named, um, BR stands for breast and CA stands for cancer, but it turns out that those two same genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, when they have mutations, are also the most common cause of hereditary ovarian cancer. Um, So it has been a recommendation for many years now that all women with ovarian cancer, regardless if they have a family history or not, should be offered genetic testing for mutations in these two genes in particular. And at the James, we've really worked hard to make sure that we're making that option available to all women who are diagnosed. And even for those women who were diagnosed many years ago, we're going back and offering them this option. So the genetic testing itself is fairly straightforward. It usually involves a simple blood draw, or we can even do it with saliva now, so a person can spit into a tube from their home. Um, And then we send it to a laboratory, and they essentially screen the genetic code for these genes and look for mutations. And the results take a couple of weeks to come back. What are you finding when you go back and test women who have had ovarian cancer? 
You know, about 20% of women who were diagnosed with ovarian cancer have an inherited mutation in one of these genes. And it might be BRCA1 and 2. That's the most common thing that we find if we find something. Uh, But there are a whole host of other genes that are less common but function in a very similar way and so bring with them elevated cancer risks. Um, Sometimes the cancers that are associated with specific genes are slightly different. So it might not be just breast and ovary that we're talking about, but maybe we're also talking about pancreatic cancer or colon cancer, for instance, depending on the gene. Um, But it really allows us to provide some guidance with regard to what cancer screening needs to be done for the patient that we've tested. But then maybe the most powerful thing is once we identify that hereditary cancer in the family is that we open up testing to those family members and allow them to really sit in the power position and make decisions that hopefully keep them from getting cancer and, you know, at the very least catch it early if it happens. Yeah, that's a great point. So if a woman, you do the genetic test and she has BRCA1 or 2, that means each of her children has a 50% chance. And if she has siblings who have children, you need would need to find out if that sibling has it. And if so, their children would have a 50% chance. I believe, is that called cascade testing? That is, yeah, cascade testing. So um, we would recommend genetic testing for any relative, regardless of how distantly removed they are, really, um, from the patient who's found to have a BRCA mutation. Um, once a person tests negative in a family, so let's say the woman tests positive and her sister has testing and she's negative, her children wouldn't have inherited that from her. So then that branch of the family no longer needs to pursue testing. Um, but it does have this cascading effect. So every time we get a positive result, we need to test relatives of that family member if we have any hope of really mitigating the cancer risk in the family. And not just the women in the family, but the men. Correct. Because a father can pass it down. That's right. And some people forget that fact, um, that these mutations can be inherited from mothers or fathers. And men with BRCA mutations actually have higher cancer risks too. So um, a man who inherits a BRCA mutation would have a higher risk of developing prostate cancer. And those prostate cancers have a tendency to be slightly more aggressive uh, than the -the run-of-the-mill prostate cancers that um, an average man gets. And men with BRCA mutations can have higher chances of male breast cancer along with those that affect both men and women like pancreatic cancer and melanomas. So I know I've talked to Heather Hampel before where she's talked about the Lynch syndrome genetic mutation, which increases the risk of colon cancer. And if they find that someone has it, a a child, 15, 18, they'll start colonoscopies earlier and do them every year. So with a a woman who has the BRCA in addition to mammograms, of course, to to detect um, breast cancer early, what do you then do to find the ovarian cancer early? How early and what age do you start and and what's the test? Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have good data to support any sort of routine ovarian cancer screening. And the annual gynecologic visits that most women do, you know, the pelvic exam and pap smear, 
um, should still be done, but they're not really designed to detect an ovarian cancer. So our counseling is more focused on um, recognizing the vague symptoms that Dr. O'Malley talked about, and then consideration of removal of the ovaries. And with a BRCA1 mutation, we usually say around age 35 to 40 is when the ovaries and fallopian tubes should be removed. Um, with BRCA2, that can be pushed slightly later, but we're still talking around age 40 or close to that um, for removal of the ovaries. Now, some researchers are looking at the possibility of removing just the fallopian tubes in the women in that younger cohort um, to see if that mitigates the ovarian cancer risk with a plan to then later remove the ovaries closer to the natural menopause age, but that's still in clinical trials, so it's not part of standard care yet. Knowing this information for a woman, particularly a young woman, 18, 20, 22, she can hopefully then plan her life and having children <clears throat> excuse me, accordingly and know that at a certain age, um, to, de- to decrease my odds, I would have these operations. So knowledge is powerful and preventative. Right. And, you know, that knowledge is a benefit and sometimes a burden, as you can imagine, for some young women, um, you know, I think women in a lot of situations at a certain age feel their biological clock ticking. And um, when you know that you're probably going to be facing having your ovaries removed at a relatively young age, sometimes that puts a little extra pressure um, on a woman and on her relationships. And so that's something that we talk to people about too, because knowledge is definitely power and we want to keep people healthy and let them make good decisions But those decisions can't be taken lightly. And so there are complicated discussions to have and one that needs to keep evolving over time. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And there's can be pressure and anxiety about that decision. So and like you just said, you work to reduce that. So that's right. Are there any is the James doing anything on sort of a a local or regional um, plan to increase the number of women who get this genetic testing to, to determine if they have the, uh, that hereditary problem? Yeah, you know, we feel strongly about the fact that all women with ovarian cancer should be offered genetic testing. And so at the James, we have genetic counselors that are dedicated just to facilitating that process for women who have been diagnosed. So we actually you know, staff the gynecologic oncology clinic, which has really increased access. Sometimes we even offer that service while a woman is getting her chemo infusion, for instance. Um, During COVID, we've started offering these uh, visits remotely. So people are doing the visits from their homes. But we're also um, currently conducting a traceback program, which essentially allowed us to go back to prior patients, maybe before these recommendations were so clear that all women should be offered testing. And we're contacting those patients who were diagnosed previously and maybe just didn't have the option. And we're also contacting relatives of the women who unfortunately have since passed away. Um, Because while yes, this genetic testing could have been impactful for the woman who had ovarian cancer, it's equally impactful for her family members. And so we're doing our best to get in touch with them too. So we've contacted hundreds of women that way. 
Wow, that's fascinating that you're reaching back to women who were treated two, three, four, five years ago, contacting them and their families. What's sort of been the the response you're getting when you contact people? You know, it's mixed. Um, we have a fair number of um, women who are very grateful, and we've been able to see them and offer them the testing. Um, some that have maybe been thinking about it for years and just never went through. And so our contact with them has allowed them to ask questions and, you know, dispel any fears that maybe they had going into the process. Um, it's a hard conversation for some people when the patient with ovarian cancer has passed away. You know, we're kind of calling them out of the blue and um, a reminder about a really hard time in their life sometimes isn't um, what they need right now, right. but it's completely optional. We're just making the, the service available. So when you look ahead five, 10 years, what do you see happening? Do you see their, the development of a better screening process, hopefully? And do you, how do you see genetic testing expanding to find more people at risk? I think genetic testing has grown so much over the last 10 years, and it's on a trajectory to keep doing that. Um, you know, in the ovarian cancer world, we're still mostly starting genetic testing with the women who have already been diagnosed, which still has a great benefit. But I think we're moving more and more toward testing women before even someone in their family has been diagnosed with cancer, maybe in their primary care office or in their OBGYN visits. Um, and we're identifying people with mutations where their family history wouldn't suggest that you even needed to do genetic testing uh, to begin with. But that, again, increases the opportunities to hopefully prevent cancer. I mean, are you talking about a day when every woman at a certain age would get a genetic test to see if she had BRCA1 and 2 and Lynch and all the other identified genetic mutations? Yeah, I don't think it's that um, far away, honestly. And there have been some pretty renowned experts in the field that have been arguing for that for years. Um, and genetic testing has become far more accessible and part of all of our daily lives and less scary and science fiction. Um, so I think someday we'll get there where people are getting genetic testing to help manage their care in a lot of different ways. I mean, if this is done to every woman and man because of different genetic mutations, we're talking millions of lives that could be either could be saved. That's right. And you know, I think even from a healthcare expense perspective, you know, preventing a cancer often is a lot less expensive than treating a cancer. And um, genetic testing isn't expensive like it used to be. So eventually, even from a very non-scientific but economic perspective, um, it may become what everybody does. So is this what sort of fuels your fire? To, to reach that day when, when this is possible. Yeah, you know, the best part of my day is being able to tell a family member where we know there's a hereditary cancer predisposition in their family and call their relatives and tell them that they didn't test positive for that same mutation. So they have average risk. And just the clarity that comes with 
um, you know, what has always been their fear. Lots of women are really worried about getting cancer because of their family history. And the ability to add some clarification around what their risk is and what they should be doing for screening is really, really powerful. I think it empowers people to feel like they're taking control of their own health, um, which just promotes well-being in general. Well, Leah, thank you for filling us in. And thanks to Dave O'Malley as well. I think this was a great overview on from Dave, some of the advances in treatment, and from you, some of these amazing things going on with genetic counseling and identifying of mutations that just have such amazing possibilities in the future. So thanks for filling us in. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.